want you to take your Bibles and let's turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And if you need the Pew Bible, it's in page 1165. We stand as servants ready to hear the King speak to us and to respond, being quick to hear and quick to obey. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through five. Listen to the word of the Lord. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are just humbled to see your attitude towards us as we think of Palm Sunday, as we think of this Passion Week and and of Easter coming up that we celebrate really every Sunday, but especially at this time of year. And we know that if you did not have this humility and this kind of heart and really burden for others, our salvation would not have been secured and purchased. And so, Father, let us come with grateful hearts for you giving your Son to us as a sacrifice for our sins. And, Lord, may we demonstrate and learn this morning how we can have that same attitude, that same humility, that same unity that is focused on seeing others saved, others hearing the gospel, others responding and not living selfishly, and focused on our own concerns. We pray this now, Lord, that we may be hearers of your word and doers so that our lives and our hearts may be changed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this is a passage of scripture that is easy to understand and yet hard to put into practice. Case in point, the United Nations was founded upon this idea of global unity. The United Nations started in 1945 with the hope that there would never again be war on the earth. But since then, there have been over 120 conflicts and wars around the world with millions of people dying in those conflicts and wars since the beginning of the United Nations and even the Monument for Peace at Hiroshima. Why? Well, because the United Nations has absolutely no power whatsoever to transform the hearts of people. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ does. And therefore, the church of Jesus Christ And the gospel that we believe in, that we claim, that we've been changed by, and therefore 
claim is the only true power of unity in the human race that is rocked by sin, evidenced by conflict and discord and hostility. And yet, we put our hope in the fact that a day is coming when Jesus Christ will bring a a glorious unity on earth like it is in heaven. In fact, we can't even begin to imagine it. And yet, in the meantime, while we're still here, waiting for that day to come, waiting for Jesus Christ to return, our unity as a church is essential to advancing the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul calls us to live in what we are calling, what he refers to as Christian unity, when he writes in chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There's the call to unity. And then he Says it again here in chapter 2, verse 2. So if there is any encouragement, and we learned last Sunday in looking at these verses, that if it's not a, a, a question mark, it's not a doubt, it's, it's, it's not a possibility, it's a certainty. So we might phrase it like this, since or because there is encouragement in Christ, because we as Christ followers have comfort from the, God's love, have participation in the Spirit, have affection and sympathy, Paul now calls us. He says, complete my joy. How? By, again, unity. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, again, we need to understand, Paul is not calling us here. He's not asking us here to create unity. Rather, he's asking us to live out the unity that Jesus Christ has already created through the gospel. As we saw last Sunday, it's a unity that is rooted in the unity of the Trinity, the Godhead. It's a unity that is also revealed within the community of local churches across the world. And what we're going to see today is that we are called now to pursue that unity, to protect it, to preserve it. That is, don't do things that disrupt this unity, but instead do things that foster this unity or, or cultivate, promote this unity in the community of the church. So the most obvious question then is, well, what are those things? What are the things that disrupt unity and what are the things that foster unity? Well, that answer can be summarized in one overarching statement. And it's here in your notes. It's the requirement for Christian unity. And that requirement is simply this. It is Christ-like humility. Christ-like humility. Listen, understand from the outset here, there can never, never be Christian unity in the church apart from Christ-like humility for those who are part of the church. When Augustine was asked to list the three most central principles of the Christian life, he replied, number one, humility. Number two, humility. Number three, what do you think he said? Humility. 
Humility is the heartbeat of Jesus Christ, as we will see in this next section of verses 5 through 8. It's the heartbeat of Christian unity, and yet this is one virtue that is vanishing all around us. And so if the requirement for Christian unity is Christ-like humility, then what is the greatest obstacle standing in the way of Christian unity within the community of churches all across our world. Well, the greatest obstacle to it is none other than self-centered pride, which should not be a surprise to us since pride is at the core sin. It's the core issue that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. John Stott put it this way, in every aspect of our Christian life, Pride is our greatest foe, and humility is our greatest friend. In other words, no matter what we are doing, pride is always the enemy to us, and humility is always an ally for us. And so that alone reminds us how important it is for us to cultivate humility through the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, for the good of our own souls and also for the good of our witness before a watching world, let us be a people of Christ-like humility so that we might live in Christian unity. But what does that look like? Well, that's the first point I want to answer, is the dimensions of Christian unity. And I want to answer the question, well, what does Christian unity look like? And Paul answers that for us. He tells us, notice what he says in verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And those four phrases there focus on two dimensions of unity. The unity of conviction and the unity of affection. Notice the unity of conviction. Paul begins with the phrase, being of the same mind, and then he ends with being of one mind. So you have same mind and one mind. And both of these phrases focus on what we think and what we believe. Now, this doesn't mean that we should just all have the same opinions about issues. Listen, none of us have the same opinions about things in life that run a gamut from one thing to another. None of us agree about everything. And so Christian unity does not mean everyone's favorite color has to be red or everyone has to enjoy playing golf or everyone has to be a fan of the Jayhawks like I am. That's not what it means. Paul's desire is for unity, not uniformity. And so Paul does not have in mind here a community of clones who all dress alike, look alike, sound alike, think alike, or act alike. That is neither healthy nor biblical. In fact, churches should be the opposite. There should be diversity of people who are unified around something much, much deeper than these surface trivial things that matter not a whole lot. So unity of conviction is not necessarily about unity of thought. Rather, it's about the unity of purpose. And what is that purpose? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul is calling us to live worthy of. Paul's already mentioned the gospel five different times in chapter 1. And the fifth time he declared in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In fact, this is the commanding theme 
all the way through chapter 2 to verse 18. So the call here to be of one mind, to be of the same mind, is really Paul's plea for us to be gospel-driven. That that becomes our all-consuming purpose. We are gospel-driven as a people here at LifeBridge. What Paul is saying is that we are to embrace the conviction that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what the world needs most. That's something we rally around. What Paul is saying is don't let your differences of opinions, and we all have them, don't let those distract you from this single-minded purpose that is driven by the gospel. United in the gospel, we can set aside our differences. We can put aside our opinions and preferences that can disrupt the unity of a church family. And so you have unity of conviction, but there's a second dimension here that Paul refers to right here in verse 2, and that is unity of affection. Unity of affection. This phrase, being in full accord, It actually translates a Greek word that speaks of souls joined together or united together in harmony with one another. In fact, this phrase literally means to be one-souled. And it, it seems to be that Paul coined this phrase himself when he wrote this. It's as if Paul is saying it's not enough to just agree with each other on the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, in other words, calls us to care for each other with a love that binds your souls together so strongly that differences of opinions cannot pull you apart now. This strong bond of affection, which is grounded in the gospel, is what stabilizes our relationship with each other in spite of the differences we might have, and even is what allows us now to address any of those differences between two parties or two people or whatever the case may be, as it is sometimes needed. By the way, I'm thankful Paul didn't write loving the same things, aren't you? Because the reality is we don't all love the same things. We just don't. We're each unique. We each have our own preferences and likes and dislikes. And so Paul's not calling us here to love the same things, but he is saying we do share the same love. As Christians, we have all received the same love of God through Jesus Christ, and we are to demonstrate that love with one another. And did you notice that Paul isn't telling us to love those people who love you? Nor is he telling us to love people who are, quote, lovable either. I mean, let's be honest. None of us are, quote, lovable all the time, right? I mean, some of you here may be lovable two or three days a week, and that's in a good week. Some of us are just lovable one day a week. After all, we're all a little like porcupines. We have some good points about us, but it's difficult to get too close because our prickly personalities keep needling each other. And that's okay, because Jesus doesn't command you to, quote, like one another, but he does command us to love one another. And this kind of love for one another, Paul is telling us here, it requires a certain mindset. It requires a certain attitude that's governed by selfless 
humility. Remember last Sunday, we looked at two women in the church of Philippi who, who weren't getting along with one another, Yodia and Syntyche. And it's interesting that Paul commends their faithful service to the gospel, and yet he entreats them, he implores them to, quote, agree in the Lord, or literally to think the same thing in the Lord, replicating the very same wording here of being of the same mind. In other words, the unity that fills Paul's heart with joy, it certainly encompasses our common conviction when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it goes beyond just conviction to bind our souls together in deep affection for one another and even sacrificial love. So what does Christian unity look like? Well, it's gospel-driven unity that's built on the unity of conviction and unity of affection. So how do we accomplish and maintain this unity? Well, that brings us to the demonstration of Christian unity, where we answer the question here, how is Christian unity lived out? How is it lived out? Now, remember, Christian unity is lived out where? Listen, it's not necessarily lived out in the world. It's not even necessarily lived out in your workplace or in your neighborhood or at the PTA meeting that you might be a part of. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul is emphasizing that this Christian unity is lived out between believers in Jesus Christ within the community of the local church. Now, it's true. We are spiritually one with Christians all across the world, are we not? But we don't serve alongside them shoulder to shoulder. That happens in the local church. So this unity is to be lived out between us in the community here with other believers. Because, listen, it's easy to say we are spiritually one with Christians halfway around the world. Or even on the other side of the city here. But it's another thing to live in unity with Christians that you're sitting next to and serving alongside of in ministry. So how is Christian unity lived out? Well, Paul provides the answer here in verses 3 and 5. These verses here now are filled with both positive and negative exhortations that call us to live in a way that fosters or cultivates Christian unity. Look what Paul writes one more time. Look what he says beginning in verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, in the abstract, we, are, we all admire unity in any community. But Paul gets down to the nitty-gritty here of Christian unity in these verses. In fact, he unpacks this by, to be honest with you, probing the motives of our hearts. The driving forces that either undermine or reinforce harmony with others in the body of Christ. And he starts with the negative because he knows that this particular congregation here at the Church of Philippi, which is you know, by application, all of us, actually exhibits the symptoms that can cause discord and disunity and division 
in a church. So here's the practices that foster Christian unity. First of all, he is exhorting us to replace self-centered pride with other-centered humility. Paul says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Now this verse cuts to the heart of the issue. I mean, Paul just goes straight to it. He doesn't beat around the bush. This verse shows us that the reason why we find it sometimes so hard to build and maintain Christian unity is because of our pride, which exhibits itself in selfishness and self-importance. Paul knows that selfish ambition and conceit are the mortal enemies of unity and harmony in the church. Paul knows that there cannot be genuine unity where there is no real humility, for Christ-like humility is the heart of Christian unity. As C.S. Lewis wrote, Pride is the mother hen under which all other sins are hatched. And so Paul forbids us here from allowing pride to hatch two particular sins in our lives. Self-ambition and conceit. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition. In other words, do nothing that's motivated by self. Now, how unnatural is that? Aristotle used this term selfish ambition to describe the self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. He said that many, many years ago, and it's still true today. We see it every election. By the time of Paul's letter, selfish ambition referred most often to someone who jockeyed for position and power. Now that's what's natural to us. It's the ugly self-promotion that actually steps on the necks of others in order to lift oneself up. It's pride that's intent on advancing self and pushing one's self-serving agenda. Now, if you want an example of this, just go to 3 John. And there you see, in reference, is a person by the name of Diotrephes, who the Apostle John wrote about. This person, this man in the church there, he liked to put himself first in the church. He jockeyed for position and power in the church. Why? Selfish ambition, it's a consuming and destructive sin. It destroys unity within the church. And so you can understand why Paul would warn the church against such characteristics, against selfish ambition, discord and division are inevitable when people jockey for position, when people push for their own self-serving agendas. And so Paul is challenging us here to face the question, why do I do what I'm doing in service to God in my church, even in my home and in my workplace? Why do I do what I'm doing? Am I driven by self-centered motives? even when I'm supposedly even helping others? Am I self-serving, even while serving others? 
wanting and hoping to be noticed so that I receive some type of recognition and praise that I think I deserve. Whether I express it outwardly or not, do I nurse resentment when my hard work is ignored or when my brilliant ideas are not followed? And Paul's linking, it's interesting, his linking of selfish ambition with conceit He's linking both of these together. It shows us that what he's most concerned about here is the self-centeredness that seeks praise for what one has done. In other words, he is, he's, he's, he's confronting the glory seekers in the church. This word conceit is translated from a Greek word that means vainglory or empty praise. It's an attempt to get glory, but in reality, it's nothing more than empty, exaggerated self-importance. Just picture a balloon at a kid's birthday party, and you get the idea. It may appear big and beautiful, that balloon on the outside, but on the inside, it's just full of hot air. One day, listen to me, the glory of mankind, it will wither like a scorched flower, when the light of God's glory has risen upon this earth. And in that day, all the glory of mankind will be seen as absolutely vain and empty. Thus, to live for the glories of people is a very hollow pursuit. John Wooden, the former coach of the UCLA Bruins basketball team, gives this advice. He says, talent is God-given. Be humble about it. Fame is man-given. Be thankful. Conceit is self-given. Be oh so very careful, he says. The opposite of all this, the opposite of vainglory, is none other than Jesus Christ, which we will look at here in two weeks after Easter. We'll look at Jesus Christ. And listen, he did not have empty glory. Jesus had all glory. And yet, what does he do? He emptied himself, and he made himself nothing for our sake. And so Jesus shows us that self-emptying service is the route to real glory, whereas self-centered ambition yields only empty glory. So the question then becomes, what must I replace? What must replace selfish ambition and conceit as the driving force in our lives? And let me tell you, it's the most unnatural attitude imaginable to mankind. When Paul writes, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That goes against everything about us. We are not wired that way. And then, humility. What does that even mean? Well, one definition is humility means seeing yourself realistically as God sees you. Not higher than you are, but neither lower either. And so humility is not thinking less of yourself. Listen, humility is thinking of yourself less so that you might think of others more. 
In other words, a humble person doesn't view himself or herself as superior to anybody, but instead counts everybody more significant than themselves in terms of respect and with concern. And so just think what our church would be like if each of us counted others more significant than ourselves, rather than acting like the world orbits around us. Just think what your home would be like if we all did this. Now, one word of caution here is the more that we make humility our aim, the more we are tempted to become proud of our motives. As Ken Crockett writes in his book, Making Today Count for Eternity, he says, humility is like a slippery watermelon seed. Once you get it under your finger and you think you have it, it slips right out of your grasp. So our focus is not necessarily to be, pers- to be pursuing humility but rather to be pursuing Jesus Christ and seeking to be Christ-like. Because as we seek Jesus and become more like Him, humility will inevitably follow. It will flow out of us. So Paul's first exhortation to us here is to replace self-centered pride with other-centered humility. Number two, he tells us, to move beyond now. Move beyond looking out only for your interest into looking out for the interests of others first. Look what Paul writes again in verse 4. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, the most natural thing for every one of us here to do is to look out for number one. That comes easy, that comes natural. You get out of the bed in the morning, and it's all about your own personal interests and needs in life. I mean, we wake up, and we're naturally just focused on us. Right? But Paul says, look out for others first. And so if you want a simple recipe for a healthy, united church, or even a healthy, united home, here it is. Take a handful of people who all look out for others above themselves, Mix them together and you have a beautiful, harmonious church or home. But discord and division all stem from a bunch of people looking out for number one. The conductor of a symphony orchestra was once asked, what's the most difficult instrument to play? He responded, second violin. I can find plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play second violin with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we have no second violin, we have no harmony. And the key word in this verse here, verse 4, is look, which means to pay careful attention to, to look out for, to notice. And so Paul is saying that we are to look out for, we are to pay careful attention to the needs or the interests of others. He wants us to prioritize their interests, their needs above our own. In fact, Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24. He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Paul Moody once said, greatness is not measured by how many people are your servants, but by how many people you serve. At the same time, Please understand, Paul's not forbidding us here from having personal interests. 
nor is he forbidding you from paying attention to your needs in life. Listen, there's nothing wrong with looking out for your own interests. There's nothing wrong with meeting your needs or even your family's needs. However, if that's all you look out for is your own interests, your own needs, Paul is saying beware. Beware. Short-sightedness that only allows you to see your own interests and needs is childish and selfish, and it is the cause of so much discord and division in the church and even in our homes. I know many of you, like myself, I grew up learning the acronym J-O-Y, JOY. It stands for Jesus, others, and you. In fact, J-O-Y-O J-Y-O, is, isn't even a word. You can't claim to put Jesus first in your life if you don't put others above yourself. James Boyce put it like this. The unbeliever naturally, and what's this, not, this is the way we were before Christ, before we were born again. And it's something we still struggle with even after salvation, which is why Paul has to remind us of this. But he says this, the unbeliever naturally puts himself first, others second, and God last. And he may think that he even merits this order. But the Bible teaches that we should reverse the series. God is to be first, others second, and we must come last. Many years ago at the NCAA Final Four in Dallas, the head coach was asked, why has your team done so well? What is it about this team that has made it come as far as it has? Because everybody wants to know about your success. And here's what he said. He said, we have a motto on our team, and the motto is this. Good people do for themselves. Great people do for others. This coach nailed it. Great people do for others. Now, this practice of thinking about the needs of others more than your own needs, it only flows from an attitude or a mindset of humility. But again, this is not the way that we naturally are wired. In fact, it's interesting. In Paul's day... The secular authors of his day actually used this term humility to describe someone of weakness, to even describe weakness, to describe helplessness. And yet Paul, now, he's building on the Old Testament promise that God gives grace to the humble. He's captivated by Jesus who described himself as lowly in heart. And now he unashamedly commends humility to us as the hallmark of our Christian lives in the heart of our unity in the church. But how can we learn to live in such selfless humility? Well, that's the last point I want to make. And Paul tells us here to follow the example of Christ who humbled himself for our sakes. That's the whole idea of what Paul is saying here in verse 5 when he writes, Have this mind now among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 5, it's interesting. It actually acts as the hinge between Paul's call to unity in his first four verses and Christ's hymn of praise in verses 6 through 11. Paul says that we are to have the same attitude or the same mind as Christ. And what was Christ's mind? What was his attitude? It was an attitude of humble 
self-sacrifice for our sakes. Verses 6 through 11 celebrate the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in fact, it's actually called the hymn of Christ because more than likely it was actually a hymn sung by the early church. But this hymn is not placed here by Paul to give us some abstract theology lesson or to teach us about first century worship. Paul has much greater purposes than that. It's placed here to reveal to us the attitude of Christ or the mind of Christ. Heaven's king, who according to verse 7, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And according to verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now what's really interesting is even with all our medical advancements, today. And there are plenty. I mean, just think of the COVID vaccine that was produced and put together in a record amount of time. Never before in history has a vaccine been put on the market this fast. And so with all, even all our medical advancements today, it is difficult to imagine taking on someone else's mind I mean, a heart transplant, a kidney transplant, a liver transplant, that's one thing. But having the mind of someone else is something entirely different. And yet Paul says, this mind is yours in Jesus Christ. Do you realize what this means? It means the source of our living in Christian unity through Christ-like humility is Christ himself. Yes, this kind of humility, it is the most unnatural way to live, which is why Paul calls this kind of unity through Christ-like humility for the church, not for those outside the church. This is why we will never see unity in the world. This kind of humility, it is possible only for those who are in Christ Jesus. This other serving mindset of Christ is so unnatural to our self-preserving instincts. And yet, when God's grace grips us, we begin to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ within the same or with the same passionate intensity that we so just automatically care about our own comforts and concerns. So, Christ-like humility. It is the key. It's the foundation to a profound Christian unity that can weather the storms of external opposition in the world and internal disagreements even within the church. And when we follow Christ's example of humility, do you know what that does? Oh, it leads to a church that is unified. It leads to a church that flourishes in the gospel and is united with one another. In these verses on unity, Paul is, is doing some stuff here. Paul is, he's actually, he's battling pride. Oh, is he battling pride in these verses? Because he knows pride's at the center of our hearts. It's the core issue in our hearts. And so he's battling pride while at the same time he's cultivating humility. And he does this in two different ways. 
First of all, he exhorts us to replace pride with humility. And then he lifts our eyes up and he points us to Jesus Christ on the cross. And so I want us to end by reflecting on the humility of Christ on the cross by participating in communion. Listen, if you don't get anything else out of this message, get this. Humility only comes at the foot of the cross. Why? Because it is hard to be prideful when you're standing at the foot of the cross reflecting on what Christ did for you. Listen to what John Stott writes. He says, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true sides with their heads bowed. Let me ask you, have you been cut down to size by what Christ has done for you on the cross? Have you recognized the ugliness of your sin and pride and cried out in repentance to God and asked for his forgiveness? Listen, if you haven't, I plead with you to reflect on your sinfulness and that your only hope is in Jesus Christ. He stands willing to save you through repentance and faith in him. And to those of us who are believers in Christ, to our LifeBridge family, do you realize unity in the church is squelched when people are not getting along, when people avoid each other, when there is resentment and tension between people, when relationships go unreconciled. And so before we participate in communion, let us pause here and examine ourselves for these sins and confess them to the Lord. Jesus says in Mark eleven twenty five, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your heavenly Father may forgive you your sins. Heavenly Father, this passage is it's not so hard to understand, but it is so, so hard to put in practice. It's hard to do because by nature we are prideful and selfish and self-centered. And so, Lord, we need your help to put this into practice, to follow the example of Christ, who humbled himself himself for our sakes on the cross. So grant us grace to live in Christian unity through Christ-like humility. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, followers of Jesus Christ are invited to participate in communion. And as we say each and every time we participate, the bread and juice represent the body and blood of Jesus when he died on the cross. It reminds us of who our Lord is, what he has done for us, is doing for us, and will yet do for us when he returns. And so you are welcome to open your communion packet to eat the bread and to drink the juice.